Well, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians, and specifically Philippians 1, 27 through 30, as we finish chapter 1 of Philippians. Uh, we have been going through this epistle written by Paul to a church that he loved very much and which loved him. He had established this particular congregation in Macedonia. You remember that it was a congregation that was made up largely of uh, people who had served in the legions. Mostly they would have been from the Italian peninsula. And uh, it did not have um, many people who were uh, traders and things like that, as in uh, some of the other uh, cities that Paul had worked in. But nonetheless, it was a prosperous community, uh, a joyful community, but one where uh, the idea of Roman citizenship would have been held very, very strongly. And the idea of uh, everyone pulling together, supporting the state, supporting Caesar and so on, would have been something that, uh, that ran uh, through their, their very blood as it was. Uh, in some ways, as I've said, uh, Philippi would have been a place very much like Fayetteville in many senses. So um, not, a, not a place we can't relate to directly. But before we turn our attention to what Paul had to say to the saints there at this point, let's go before the Lord who gave him this word and let's ask for his assistance. God our Father, Lord, whenever the word is being preached, we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. We find ourselves constantly uh, drawn in other directions. It is an easy thing for us to watch entertainment, but a very difficult thing from time to time to listen to that which will edify our souls. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me this day to open up your word correctly, to divide it aright, and, O oh Lord, to apply it to your saints. These are things we need to learn, things we need to hear, especially now as uh, the cultural tide has, has turned in a very uh, sad direction. We are a people who are going to find ourselves embattled in whatever arena we are in. So, Lord, help us to take courage from these words, this inspiration, Lord, that, that Paul sought to give to those people, these exhortations that he uh, gave to them to stand fast, apply to us just as much. So, Lord, help us to hear aright and then to apply. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Reading now from Philippians 1, 27 through 30, and I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the most feared but necessary commands in the British Army during the Napoleonic era was to form square. It meant, uh, unfortunately for the men being asked to do it, that they were being charged by cavalry, seeking to get at their flanks, seeking to get at their exposed bank, uh, backs. You'll remember in chess, the knight moves forward and then to one side, the idea being that cavalry has a flanking uh, duty. They're supposed to get behind the enemy. 
And so they were told that they must quickly form a box if they wanted to survive, a square box of either four or two lines, shoulder to shoulder with their muskets pointed outwards and bayonets fixed. And at this point, after they had formed that box, a four-sided box, as I said, of four or two lines, they had to stand fast and resist the urge, which would have been overwhelming, to flee from the, uh, the French cavalry who were now riding towards them, wielding lances and sabers and carbines and, and rushing in their midst with these giant horses. Uh, if the, friend, uh, if the uh, thin red line broke, uh, the consequences would be, uh, would be dire. The cavalry would get into the box, and then they would be able to slash and stab at the unprotected backs of soldiers on the other sides, and everybody within it would be hacked to pieces, including, of course, the commander. Their survival, therefore, depended on courage. It depended upon discipline. It depended upon mutual support and an absolute commitment to the man who was standing to your left and the man who was standing to your right. The officer, who would be at the center of the square, he depended at that point entirely on his men. Their courage would be the difference between his life and his death. There was no running away for him at that point in time. He was entirely boxed in. So his exhortations to stand fast had a value to him as well. They were critically important at that moment. The thin red lines seldom broke, uh, strangely enough, despite the, the pressure that was applied. And at the Battle of Waterloo, which took place in 1815, the four rank squares of British infantry withstood 11 cavalry charges, which was uh, a huge uh, number, but they did not break. And eventually Napoleon, as you know, was defeated at that battle. Now, why is it important that I gave you this uh, lecture on British infantry tactics during the Napoleonic War? Well, hopefully, uh, you will see that there is a relationship between the need of British soldiers during the Napoleonic War to stand fast, shoulder to shoulder for their survival in the midst of deadly conflict, and the need for Christians to stand fast, shoulder to shoulder, in the midst of deadly conflict as well. We, too, are faced by deadly enemies, and not just at one battle or two battles or three battles from time to time. We are faced by enemies who do not wish us well all the time, every day, and therefore we have to, we have to exercise the same kind of tenacity, the same kind of unity, and the same kind of bravery that those men exercised while they were standing shoulder to shoulder and staring down cavalry rushing towards them. Those infantry squares had to have those qualities or they would be broken up and overwhelmed and so too Christians. We need to have those qualities. We need to exercise tenacity, unity, and bravery, simple courage in the face of our enemies or we too as churches, as families, and as a Christian community, we will be broken up and overwhelmed. Now, Paul, who was urging them to stand fast, he is writing, of course, as a prisoner in Rome, and he's suffering in chains for the sake of the gospel. This is going to be something that uh, happens to him 
uh, on a regular basis, or had happened to him on a regular basis. He had suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. When Christ called him on the way to Damascus, he warned him that he would suffer for his name's sake, and indeed, Paul had done that. And so Paul now was warning them that they too, if they are going to be good Christians, if they're going to stand fast, they're going to have to suffer for the sake of Christ again. And so time and time again, like the officer in the center of the square, he reminds the congregations that he had founded and nurtured in Europe and Asia Minor of their duty as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ to, as he puts it in these verses, to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, to show you that I'm not exaggerating, when he says, I say that he says, stand fast uh, time and again, I want to direct your attention first to Ephesians 6.10. So go ahead and turn back, if you would, one book to Ephesians. In fact, in most cases, you only have to turn one page. And there, we're going to start with Ephesians 6.10, reading there. Finally, my brethren, he writes, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, he says, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. There he recounts the, the armor of a centurion and he says there is a spiritual application of this. You must put on that armor day after day. You must take up your shield. You must make sure that your feet are shod so that you will stand fast in the right way and exercise with the sword, not merely defensively but also offensively moving forward with the gospel. That is something that he emphasizes as well. To the Corinthians he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16 13, watch, stand fast in the faith be brave, be strong. And again, to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. The verb there rendered stay, uh, stand fast again and again is the Greek word stako. It means literally to stand firm. It was the kind of command that the ex-legionaries of Philippi would have been very familiar with from their service. But I think that today, unfortunately, it's a command that the church is not that familiar with. We are a people, unfortunately, who seem to give way more often than we stand fast. We compromise again and again to no avail. We seek to make friends with people who are our intransigent enemies until their hearts are changed by the Lord. And so... Uh, the command to stako, to stand fast, is just as important for us today. We cannot continue to give ground on all sides and expect that we will not be broken up and destroyed. 
It is our calling, brothers and sisters, to stand firm, to stand fast in whatever area we are called to in our families. And sometimes that is the most difficult standing, isn't it? When you are standing against the wishes or the desires of your, your relatives, your parents, they want you to do something. Or to stand when it's your employer telling you that you must do something that goes against the word of God. Or to stand when it's your school telling you that you may not uh, speak in such a way. Or to stand when your unit says you cannot proselytize, you cannot tell people about the gospel or your school or whatever. Brothers and sisters, there are so many times these days that modern Christians are told they must back down, they must compromise, they must give way. The word of God, though, tells us we must stay co, we must stand firm no matter what. We must face down our enemies with the weapons that the Lord has given us. But uh, I will be discussing more about that in a little while. Paul exhorts these Philippians whom he loves so very much to stand firm and he tells them stand firm whether I am with you or not whether I'm there or whether I am absent he wants them to exercise tenacity to be a tenacious people who are not merely stubborn but who do not withdraw they continue to fight no matter what whether he is released to visit them or whether he continues on in jail he wants to hear a good report about their conduct he wants to hear about their tenacity. He wants to hear about their staying power. As the soldiers of the Lord ought to, he wants to hear that they stand firm. He wants to hear that they conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that verb, we are told by Hendrickson, has reference according to Christian conduct, a manner of life that befits a citizen soldier who belongs to the kingdom and army of Jesus Christ. Do you consider yourself to be a soldier in the army of Christ? Is that the way that you think of yourself? Are you somebody who is warring for the kingdom and warring in the way that Christ tells us? We're not called to be uh, the soldiers of Allah, uh, warring like jihadis, uh, taking people's lives, uh, conducting terrorist attacks, trying to blow ourselves up or anything like that. Not at all. But we are to be fighting for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are to be a people who are spreading the truth, using the gospel truth to convert hearts. We've been given a sword, a weapon, which is this book, the word of God, and we are to be using it. You need to know how to use it, though. A soldier who did not understand how to use a sword was useless in battle. So, too, standing in those squares, an untrained man who knew not how to handle musket and bayonet would have been fairly useless when the cavalry was charging him. We we need to be people who know how to handle the weapons God has given us. The first time that you share the gospel should not be a time where it's an urgent necessity and you don't know really what the gospel is yourself or how to convey it to other people. I find that one of the things also that helps us to stand firm in the faith, that solidifies our understanding, is sharing it with other people. One of the things that helped me the most to be confident in the word of God was, was standing fast against the assaults of apologists from Catholicism and, and uh, Arminianism and various other non, uh, non-Christian faiths. 
being able to defend myself and to defend the kingdom and to stand fast for the gospel truth, to stand for justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, helped me tremendously to have confidence in what I believed. The more we share our faith and the more we practice that, the better we become as Christians ourselves, the more able we are to understand it and the more confidence we'll have in times of danger. So I hope you do consider yourself as a soldier of the Lord and somebody who trains therefore for battle and who understands that you are called to a constant warfare until the day that you're called home. This is not a battle that stops until Jesus comes again. This is a battle that will go on. And yet it is one in which we are not weak and powerless. We are, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, more than conquerors because he is with us. We have nothing to fear from our enemies, brothers and sisters. The one who we should fear is the commander-in-chief. And who's that? God. (laughs) God is your commander-in-chief. It is very important that we fear God. And we do so with reverence in the way that a soldier would feel, uh, say, during World War II, if George S. Patton had walked up to him. He would be filled with uh, reverence, awe, and probably terror at confronting him. But nonetheless, he would be in awe that this commander had come and spoken to him. So we're not called to be tenacious also in this warfare simply for the sake of being stubborn and, and uh, as the British put it, and if you'll excuse this exp- uh, expression, bloody-minded. Uh, they're called to stand fast in the Lord. They're called to be rooted in him, trusting in him, loving in him, depending upon him, resting upon him, clinging to the things that they were taught, the truth that was conveyed to them by the apostles. Cling to the the substance of the faith that you were given, the doctrines that you received, so that you may then use these things in the midst of the kingdom, both training up those who are coming on, the, the next generation of soldiers, and also in your warfare as you go forward. Paul also, when he speaks of their, uh, their, the word actually for their conduct and so on is conducting themselves as citizens of the kingdom of God. He, he says this is a firmness that they should have as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and it has to be exercised over and over against their adversaries in the midst of persecution and difficulty. Um, now, they don't do this by themselves, obviously. Uh, One commentator notes, divine preservation does not cancel, but implies human perseverance, though. It is something that we must do. We are called upon to persevere in battle, to stand fast, to hold until relieved, as the paratroopers who landed at Pegasus Bridge were told they must do if the invasion uh, on D-Day was to succeed. But they must also be unified. You don't stand by yourself. You don't operate under your own orders. You have to have that unity. Disunity in battle is fatal. If every man decided he was going to stand wherever he wanted when the order form square came, they would be a disorganized rabble that would be quickly swept over. They had to stand in their place. They had to support the people to their left and to their right and obey the commands of their officer or they would be destroyed. And this is something that we need to do as a church as well. We need unity in acting together. We cannot merely go forward acting as though we can support ourselves. The coal that rolls away from the fire quickly goes out. We need to be 
together burning brightly to advance the gospel truth. Christian unity and harmony in our action and in our warfare was something that Paul pressed upon the Philippians, that they must be unified. Also, when there's disunity within the body, they tend to attack one another more than the enemy. I'm sure you have experienced, I, I hope you haven't experienced this in a church that you've attended, but I'm sure you have met people who have spoken about how broken up their churches are and how disunified they are and how they are constantly going at one another and how depressing and dispiriting that is. A church that's like that is not likely to do great things for the Lord. But we need to remember that this side of glory, conditions are never going to be ideal. No campaigner has ever found that, you know, he, he has waged the perfect battle in the perfect circumstances and the perfect weather and so on. We always start with high ideals and we find that the warfare is a terrible slog as a general rule. But that is not something that should dissuade us. We should understand that's the common property of warfare and it will be part of our spiritual warfare here on earth. The, uh, I, I wish if I could go back um, and, and talk to myself in seminary, one of the, you know, uh, the, the proverbs I would say to myself is expect the unexpected constantly. Things are going to happen that you do not see coming and they're going to happen on a regular basis. And so, get it in your head that there's no normal church life. Everything will be happening all the time. Uh, not to make reference to the terrible movie that, uh, anyway, with that name, moving on. They have to be <laughs> unified, therefore. Um, it is important that we, as a church, if we are going to do great things for the Lord, that we have that oneness in Christ that there be no prima donnas who are taking you know, the spotlight to themselves, but rather that we are seeking to see that Christ increases and we decrease all the time. That is something that we have striven to do. It's one of the reasons why we don't have special music, for instance. We don't, we don't want the spotlight to be shone on, on particular people. We need to be working together to move the gospel football forward, if I can uh, say that, and well done army, incidentally. Um, the unity, therefore, <laughs> that we have here, in this, sorry, uh, uh, that we're speaking is, is, is like the, the square that I was speaking of. It's a struggle in the midst of combat side by side. I think many times when Christians say they're going to sign up for a committee, they're going to be involved in something, that they expect that it'll be just like ordinary work on a, on a work site, perhaps, that we'll go and we'll gradually build the wall together, the weather will be perfect, and then at the end we'll all stand back and go and say, what a great job we did. Now, it's rather more like what happened uh, to Nehemiah. As he's building the wall in Jerusalem, he's constantly being attacked by enemies, and the men have to stand on the wall with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That's the way Christians will be doing their labor always, because the enemy does not want you to succeed. He wants you to fail. He will do everything that he can to disrupt the unity of the church, to break up its work, to dispirit you, to make it seem like none of this is ever going to work. There are times when looking at the, at the idea of, for instance, building up gospel ministry in East Africa, and I've got to tell you, East Africa is not the most difficult place in Africa to labor by, any, by a long shot. In some sense, it's, it's one of the easiest places. But sometimes you look at it and you say, this is impossible. 
We can't change uh, many of the cultural things that are so entrenched that have no basis whatsoever in Christianity, for instance. But yes, you can. I look at America and I say, oh, it's hopeless, game over, we're done, let's go home, you know. That kind of, it's not the case, though, brothers and sisters. Do not forget ever that you are on the winning side, that your commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already won the battle on your behalf. You are involved in the long, hard slog of the mopping-up operation, properly understood. But that the going will be difficult is something that Jesus Christ warned us. He told us in this world we would have affliction. He told us that we would be persecuted for his sake. But the odd thing, and this is something we need to remember, is that that's an honor, actually. And it's a sign of good things. Paul tells them here that when they find themselves being afflicted and yet standing fast, that's a sign to the world that they are headed for damnation and a sign to the Christian that they're headed for glory, that victory is ahead of them. One of the things that irritated me to no end as a non-Christian was the perseverance of Christians. They would come at me with the gospel, and I would be horrendous to them. I mean, just downright rude and nasty. And they'd come around the next week still smiling. What is wrong with these people? Why can't I make you as sad and despairing as I am? That kind of thing. Honestly, brothers and sisters, the, your ability to persevere, to do so cheerfully in the name of the Lord, is really a sign to the world that they're doing it wrong, that they're on the wrong side. It's seldom the case that, as in the, the famous skit, you know, the world steps back and says, hang on a moment, are we the baddies? But really... From time to time, the truth breaks through. I, I had to come to the conclusion, yes, I was actually the baddie, that I was on the wrong side, that I was working uh, for evil. That's when my eyes were opened. But you're standing fast. You're being courageous, because that's what you're called to be. I titled the sermon, Thou Shalt Not Be a Wimp, uh, because my wife said I wasn't allowed to use the word weenie. But you're... Sorry. I just did, didn't I? Um, but don't be a wimp, Christians. Do not be limp. Do not be evangelifish. Be people who are willing to stand firm. Remember, you are soldiers of the Lord. You are not, I don't know, you're not the catering corps. You are supposed to be the armored spearhead, brothers and sisters. You are uh, no offense to anybody who's ever been part of the catering corps, incidentally. I know that logistics is a very important part of every army. I'm probably getting myself uh, digging deeper. Sorry. So. Cooking is very important, and uh, an army marches on its stomach, right? Uh, but in any event, we need to remember, brothers and sisters, we're expected to be in the battle, not behind the lines. We are expected to be moving forward, moving the church forward wherever we are. And so we have to be courageous. We, we must not be frightened. You must not be like a bunch of bunnies when somebody shows up. You know, you go off in all sorts of directions, running away. Over and against your enemies, like the Philippians, you have to stand fast with an undaunted courage. You can't be like Peter in the courtyard of the high priest, scared of, of what a little woman or a little girl might say to you. A little slave girl comes up to you and asks, aren't you one of his servants? Oh, no, I don't know him. 
And I am ashamed to tell you there have been times when I have not been eager to tell people I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that should be something that we are proud of, not something that we seek to hide. One of the things that I tell people going into the military or going into some secular pursuit is don't strive to be a secret agent Christian. There are so many soldiers who think that, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into this unit. I'm going to act just like they do. I'm going to participate in everything that they participate in. I'm going to speak the way they speak. I'm going to have the same interests. And then suddenly one day there'll be this moment when it's time for a Christian witness and I'll expose my chest and it'll say, see, and I'll say, ha ha, I am the Christian. Christian you've been looking for, and I'll share the gospel at that point, and they'll all be saved. No, what will happen is if you try that later on, and you won't because you'll have conformed to them, you will say, ha ha, and they'll look, who are you? You've been doing all the same things we've been doing. You're no different from us. Now, if we, we try that ploy, nothing good comes of it. Be weird from the outset. Don't be afraid to be a peculiar people for the Lord wherever you are. Tap into your natural Christian peculiarity and stand fast for Christ. Be outspoken wherever you are. Don't show fear. Now, there is just one, one point I, I, I should uh, dip into in terms of exposition. Who are the, the adversaries that Paul is talking about? Um, some immediately think that when he's warning them of their adversaries, the enemies who stand against them, he's speaking of the Jews, because that happens so often in Asia Minor, for instance. But we know that when Paul reached Philippi, he didn't find a synagogue. He found the women were worshiping by the river. There was no strong Jewish community here to oppose the Christians. Who was opposing them? Well, the answer is uh, he, he speaks of, um, in, Rome, in sorry, Philippians 3.2, he tells them, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And then if you go down a little from uh, uh, 3.2 to 3.18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So who is he talking about as their enemies? Well, they would have been pagans you know, the worshipers of false gods who would have been offended at the idea that they denied their gods. One of the things that made the Romans enraged was not the fact that they worshiped their own particular god. People from throughout the empire worshiped a particular god particularly, but that they only worshiped that god, and they said he was the only god. The Roman Empire taught pluralism. It taught the fact that there, or rather the idea, it's not a fact, it's in fact falsehood, that there were many gods, many pantheons. They didn't care if you worshiped Zeus as long as you also were willing to call him uh, something else. You were willing to call him Juno or, uh, is it Juno? It was Zeus and Juno or is it Apollo? No. It's Juno. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I sometimes doubt myself. Apollo, Venus, and so on. As long as you were willing to worship all of these different gods, they were okay with it. You know, you go worship your god, no problem. And then, you know, remember also, you have to burn a pinch, a pinch of incense to Caesar as a god and pronounce before the world Caesar is Lord. The Christians, meanwhile, what did they do? They disavowed all the other gods. They said there is only one God. 
And he only has one son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they said, I can't burn a pinch of incense as a sacrifice and say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. And that got them into terrible trouble. So there were the pagans, then there were the false Christians, the people who maintained a a false Christianity in their midst and who would actually speak against the people who were maintaining true Christianity. Then there were the Judaizers, the people who would follow in the train of Paul coming into the places where he had already evangelized and teaching them, well, you've begun by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's time for you to become a Jew and to continue on in the ceremonial law. That was the kind of problem that he had in Galatia. That is the the circumcision or the, uh, uh, not the circumcision as he uh, calls them, the mutilation. Those who were uh, calling upon Gentiles to be circumcised. Then they had to deal simply with the Roman officials and also guilds. In order to have a job in many of these towns, you had to worship at a certain temple. The guild would have their patron deity. If you didn't show up for the guild meetings in the temple while offering a sacrifice, there were many trades that you couldn't enter into. Brothers and sisters, this is a problem that some of our brothers and sisters throughout the world in many places still have. They can't get jobs because they're not Muslims, for instance. That happens to Pakistanis all the time. There are members of the ARP who have advanced degrees who can't get any job other than working on streets, working in sewers, or making bricks because they are barred because they're Christians. And the temptation, of course, is I could get a good job with good money. I could join the military. I could do all of these things if I would only say the Shahada and pretend to be a Muslim. But the Lord says that's a compromise that we must not make. And so they don't. And so there were all of these adversaries amongst them, around them, uh, throughout this, this colony. They were people who day by day made their lives different, difficult. But they said, don't compromise with them. Don't, don't be like the Laodiceans who Jesus attacks in Revelation 3 for being so lukewarm. Your struggle is against the Jews and the Gentiles, against anybody who stands against Jesus Christ, anybody who who preaches antinomianism, for instance, or seeks to get you to be involved in sinful practices and pursuits. And he says that their courage in this battle, their standing, would be a sign of damnation to their enemies, as we said before. When the wicked strive against the Lord, says Calvin, they engage in a preliminary battle which anticipates their ultimate ruin, and the greater the outrage they do against the godly, the more they are bent on their own perdition. When people attack you, remember they are heaping coals upon their own heads. They're adding to their own damnation. Properly understood, therefore, what we should feel towards the enemies of Christ is pity because they are making hell a hotter place for themselves as they attack you for your Christianity. So we need to stand fast, knowing that this is evidence of our indomitable spirit, which comes to us from the Lord Jesus Christ and gives us a fearlessness that will enable us to stand fast. I don't know if you've ever, and I imagine most of you who have reached adulthood, you've been put in a position where your faith has been tested and tried. Will you back down? I have often worried, would I stand fast? But in time after time, it has not been me who's been standing fast, it's been Christ in me who was standing fast, who was saying the things that needed to be said 
Uh, I remember one particular occasion, uh, it was during a, well, I've spoken of it before, a brown bag diversity luncheon where one of my coworkers who was Christian was being mercilessly attacked by the homosexual members of the, of the company and there were lots of them. And uh, I came in and I immediately opened up the word of God to Romans 1.18 through 32 and began talking about what happens to a people who deny their creator and how sexual sin is an inevitable part of it. Uh, this did not win me friends or influence in high places. But I remember after I was done, I was amazed because I felt no fear whatsoever. I understood the dynamics of the situation. I understood that I was placing my job in jeopardy, a job that I, I really could not afford to lose. Uh, but at the same time, I, didn't, I wasn't worried. And I was amazed because normally worrying, I, I mean, public speaking is something that causes me anxiety. Even as I speak to you on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, I feel this natural kind of, ah, you know. But when I'm standing for Christ, I'm not worried because he is the one who is doing the courage building within me, the one who often will give me the words uh, that I don't have myself. Test this. I, I ask you, put it to the test. When you are confronted, stand fast for the Lord and you will find that you have a vigor, you have a courage and a tenacity you did not know you had because it's not yours. It comes to you from the Holy Spirit. And when you suffer for Christ's sake, you are suffering for all the right reasons. Remember, the one who suffered for you first Paul points out that when they suffer for Christ's sake, they are like him. He was suffering jail in Rome, suffering the, uh, the afflictions over there, but they were with him in suffering because they were all suffering for Christ. And I, I do want to give you an application. It's a very important one. Often we, we flee suffering. In most cases, we try to avoid it. We are perhaps the most suffering-averse generation in history. We'll do anything to push off suffering. We are uh, a people who are addicted to pain relievers and so on. We, we try to make sure that our comfort zones are absolutely uh, you know, ironclad. Nobody can come in and cause us spiritual or mental pain. We try everything that we can to make sure that we never suffer. But actually, suffering is supposed to be part of the human uh, condition after the fall. And more importantly, it is something that improves the Christian. Believe it or not, your time in affliction, your time in the furnace refines you. And it does other things too. For instance, suffering brings Christ nearer to the soul of the Christian. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we begin to understand his suffering better than we ever could otherwise. We are reminded that he is the one who suffered for us, that we might be freed from sin, that we might be sent to heaven ultimately. Also, it brings us assurance of salvation as you suffer for the sake of Christ. It's a reminder to you of whose side you're on and where you're going and of the promises that are given to those who are suffering for Christ's sake. He tells us that if you suffer for his sake, you will be given the victor's crown. It's a sign that you are on the right side, headed in the right direction. Also, it was a reminder that we who suffer loss here, we've been told again and again that we will enjoy rewards hereafter. 
Jesus himself said that if you suffer for him, you will ultimately lose nothing but gain everything. Whereas if here on earth we choose not to suffer and go after the world, we will be the losers. We will find that everything that we strove for here on earth was of no use. Also, our suffering, as Paul puts it here, is a, is a reminder that we win unbelievers for Christ by showing our tenacity. I gave the example before of how the martyrs who were being burned for their faith in Britain, they were an example of the truth of the gospel that couldn't be denied. As you're willing to stand firm for Christ, you are showing the truth of the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving people. That you're willing to go through that is a testimony to them that you believe in your heart that this is true. And as they see your ability to stand, they know it's the case. And all of these things, and this isn't something that should be simply pushed aside, all of these things are ways of frustrating Satan. And isn't that a wonderful thing to do? It should be, you know, how can I frustrate Satan today? How can I make the deceiver's life more miserable or him more angry? That should be something that we long to do as servants of Christ. Remember whose you are and whose side you're on and who you are working for. And that'll change everything. There are people, remember, also who are struggling, continuing on for the sake of Christ. When you're tempted to compromise, remember how many brothers and sisters there are who are taking stands that I think American Christians would, would, would think are impossible. Just unreasonable, perhaps, we've gotten to such a point. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. It was a, a, a great uh, heartening uh, to me in the way that the Ugandans stood firm against the United States' attempts to push them into the LGBTQ agenda. And they did it very heavy-handedly. They told them, unless you cave into the whole LGBTQ agenda and trans ideology and so on, we're not going to give you support we're going to cut off aid packages. They also, they told them, you know, this is going to affect our diplomatic relations. Recently, the State Department actually told various Ugandan leaders, members of the parliament and the government, they can't travel to the United States, they won't be able to get visas because they took a vote and they, they banned L, um, uh, identifying as LGBTQ or trans within their country. You know, when the parliament took that vote, do you know what they did after they voted? They sang a hymn. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we, we look at that and we're like, well, you know, Christian legislators could never do that in America. It's, it's all too far. We've gone, we've come too far, you know? It's not possible. Brothers and sisters, it's possible. We're just not willing to do it anymore. We're not willing to stand firm. We're afraid. We've become man-fearers all over the place. I used to have brothers who would come up to me and they're like, how can you stand in, in the floor of the PCA General Assembly and and say those things when you know what it will cost you. And I, I was like, you know, I wanted to say them. Do you hear yourself? What are we afraid of? You're afraid of these guys? I'm not afraid of them. They never got into a fist fight when they were kids. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, be fearless in the name of the Lord. There are many things that may make us afraid in this world. I hate root canals. It terrify me. Um, but I'm not afraid of what men can do to me for Christ's sake because I know he stands with me, always. Stand fast. Stand firm. Don't fear. And work for the advancement of Christ's kingdom wherever you are. 
do so fearlessly. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we thank you for the encouragement to be tenacious in your name. I pray, Lord, that your servants would, uh, would remember the importance of standing in the square, that they would stand shoulder to shoulder with one another, and they would not back down, that they would know, O oh Lord, that serving you is their first and highest calling, that their citizenship is in this world, and we must be good citizens. We must pray for kings and all who are in authority. We must uh, listen to and obey their lawful commandments. But Lord, when they go against what you say, when they teach us and tell us that we must do things that go against your word, well then, Lord, give us the strength to say no and to say we ought to obey God rather than man, no matter what we think the cost may be. And let us be fearless in those moments. And I pray this in Jesus' name.